for nine years of my 21-year career in policing. I specialize in protecting children from child predators. I had the honor of helping our community open a children's advocacy center, became trained as a forensic interviewer of children, and trained other investigators in the investigation of child sexual abuse and interrogation of child molesters. Our child protection team put more than 100 child molesters behind bars and helped transform so many child victims into survivors. After becoming police chief in 2008, I made it my mission to give child victims a face and a voice and implement programs that protect them from these evil masters of manipulation. In February of 2010, I met one of the strongest, bravest, and courageous people I have ever met in my life at our annual Crimes Against Children conference. Her name is Erin Marin. During this presentation, she shared her personal story of abuse and her vision for Erin's Law. In this podcast, you will hear how Erin has turned incredible pain into passion and purpose and how this passion and purpose is protecting children all across our country. There are so many leadership lessons and takeaways from our journey. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Hello, leaders, and welcome to Leadership Excellence. My name is Danny Langloss, and today I am joined by one of the most inspirational and powerful and courageous and brave leaders and people I have ever met, Aaron Marin. I met Aaron in February of 2010 at a Crimes Against Children's conference. We were hosting the conference in Dixon, Illinois. I was heavily involved with the Shining Star Children's Center, and Aaron was the keynote speaker. And her story and her message and her vision literally just blew me away, left me speechless, inspired me, and I went up and talked to her right afterwards. And, and today, we're going to learn about her vision, we're going to learn about her passion, we're going to learn about her leadership, and the difference that she is making all across the country to protect children from pedophiles, from child molesters. And, and the work she's doing is going to blow you away. Her story is just is just crazy. So, Aaron, Aaron, thank you, thank you so much for joining me. No, thanks for having me. It is great to see you. Good to see you too. It's been a, it's been a while. It has been a while. How long has Six, it been? Five years. Five years. Yeah, five years ago. We've stayed in some contact. I'm yeah. following you and all the great work you're doing. Uh, to think that that we passed Aaron's law, which you'll explain all about. In, in 2013, right? Yep. Um, and the fact that how many states now have you gotten this law passed in? 37 states. 37 states. If you ever wonder or question the impact that a person can have, wonder no more. This, this story is going to blow you away. Erin was recognized as Glamour's Woman of the Year. She's been on Oprah Winfrey, which was just absolutely crazy. Talk crazy can you believe that yeah it was I tried for a long time because I knew the power that Oprah has so I I've got this you know vision of if I want to accomplish something I'll accomplish it I don't give up very determined and I was determined because I knew if I got on her show with my message it could help me with accomplishing what I was setting out to do to protect kids yeah and boy have you 
<laughs> so, so Aaron, let's go back to February 2010. You come to Dixon. You're the keynote speaker at the Shining Star Children's Center Crimes Against Children Conference. You want to start by, by sharing your story? Yeah, definitely. So the reason I have so much passion behind this is when I was six years old, I met my best friend in kindergarten, and it was at her house that I had my very first overnight. Now, something to understand about her, she came from a broken home. Single mom, dad wasn't in the picture, and she had an uncle that lived with her and played the caretaker role watched her and her little brother while the mom worked. But I would describe him as a neglectful caretaker because anytime I was at her house, he was always sleeping and wasn't watching her brother while the mom was missing, you know, at work. So it was at her house, I had my very first overnight and I was sleeping on the ground in a sleeping bag and my best friend was in her bed and I woke up to the bedroom door opening and this uncle of hers coming down and sexually abusing me for the very first time. This was a man that told me to be quiet about it. So I didn't go home and tell my mom when she picks me up the next morning. No one had ever educated me on, you don't keep these secrets, you tell someone if someone touches you in your private areas. So I kept it a secret and avoided sleepovers with her as she continued to ask me to spend the night. I didn't even tell her what her uncle did. Fast forward, we're now in first grade. She's asking me to spend the night, but another girl was spending the night too. So I thought, oh, well, he can't come and do this to me because she'll be sleeping on the ground next to me and wake up. Well, something I like to point out to people is predators often have multiple victims. And if they can silence one kid, they can often silence another. And that night, this man came in once again while we were all still awake in the bedroom and sexually abused all three of us. And yet we continued to stay silent. None of us told. Well, this abuse with this man continued um, until I was eight and a half years old. So from beginning at the age of six, went till I was eight and a half, and he repeatedly told me, I know where you live, I will come get you, you have no proof that I'm doing this to you. I feared at night he was hiding under my bed or in my closets, you know, waiting to get me, and all the red flags were there. I was acting out, I was having tons of behavior problems, they labeled me in school a behavior and emotionally disturbed child, and I put my hand through a window, as a result of the abuse, but they blamed it on other things and said she'll outgrow it. And suddenly we moved and all my behavior problems disappeared. I made new friends, but I avoid sleepovers because I feared the dads, stepdads, brothers in the home abusing me. Moved on with my life only to realize I was moving that much closer to the next perpetrator. And that was at the age of 11. Not the stranger danger the cop had warned me about multiple times now, but this time a family member. I woke up while sleeping at my grandparents' condo um, to my older teenage cousin sexually abusing me. I tried to convince myself the next morning it was all a horrible dream. This was a cousin I looked up to as a brother figure. He couldn't have done this. But six months later, he did it again. And he continued to do this during family gatherings while I watched his little brother and sister, holidays, you name it, and repeatedly told me this is our secret. You will destroy our family. You have no proof I'm doing this to you. So instead of telling anybody, I told my diary instead and documented everything there and hid it under my mattress. Once again, going back to what I told you about perpetrators often having multiple victims, I didn't realize this, but this cousin was also sexually abusing my older sister, my younger sister. And so she came to me and broke her silence, and that gave me the courage to come forward and say, there's two of us, someone's got to believe us. And so we ended up breaking our silence, and that is when my abuse at the age of 13 
finally ending. So in in listening to your to your story and, and knowing your story and reading, you know, your your books, you you publish multiple books, your your sister came to you. Tell us about that conversation and what she said and what you knew that meant right away. So we were walking on a road up towards our house, and out of nowhere, she just blurts out the words, Brian's gross. And I just stopped in the street and immediately looked at her and said, he's doing it to you too? And she was shocked I knew what she meant. And we sat for the next four hours, and she told me one instant after another, or, you know, the Thanksgiving, the time we had dinner over at their house, where he abused me, and then he went after her, and just shared stories back and forth. And I just remember being so angry, angry that he had me quiet and he still went after my little sister. When, when you came forward, so you, you found out that oftentimes this happens, something is happening to us. And especially in these types of cases, you know, there's people feel like I've done something wrong. There's shame or guilt. They believe the perpetrator says, nobody will believe you. This will destroy our family. Uh, they make threats. Uh, to the victim often, and, and young kids we're talking about here. And what was the reaction in your own family when you and your sister came forward? My mom and dad obviously were devastated, and one of the first things my dad said to me was, why didn't you tell me he was doing this to you? And I looked at him and said, because he told me, you said, he, no one would believe me, that you wouldn't believe me, that teacher would nobody would believe me. So I believed the, the lies I was told. And my dad ended up confronting um, his own sister, who was my cousin's mother, and they believed their son. My cousin denied it, and my large extended family found out about this, and almost every single one of them supported the perpetrator. The police got involved. My sister and I were interviewed at a children's advocacy center. We broke our silence, found our voice, and my cousin was eventually brought into the police department and arrested after he confessed to doing this to us. And even with the confession, my dad's large extended family still stood by the perpetrator, not wanting to believe that he did this or making excuses for his behavior and minimizing it because he was a teenager. And it really, it was like secondary abuse to have this family sit there and call my sister and I liars after everything we had suffered and been through. And I always remember saying, you weren't there. I, I, I just wanted to grab every single one of them and put them in these rooms and say, this is what he did. This is what he is capable of. And I'd like to describe this, this cousin as someone that almost had like two different personalities who could come off as that really nice personal person that like can hold a great conversation, would not raise any red flags, and totally different person behind closed doors. And so that was very hard when coming forward on this and finding out that I had a large extended family that did not support us. For our listeners, as you listen to Aaron's story, um, and for those of you that, that know my background a little bit or maybe don't, I was a police officer for 21 years. For for about eight of those years, I became highly specialized in crimes against children, helped create our Children's Advocacy Center. And one of the things, and we'll talk about how Erin and I met and what we were working on at the time and her vision for Erin's law and what she was doing, Erin's story is not the exception, it's the rule. The, the thing is, when you look at the research, 33% of the time in gold standard cases, so cases where it is confirmed that this event actually happened, that the sexual abuse actually happened, 33% of the time, 
In these cases, children recant. Children take it back because all of the things they were told that kept them silent come true. And at the end of the day, it was easier to deal with the abuse than to deal with the aftermath of the abuse. And so children recant and they, and they take it back. And, and so another thing important about children, the reliability of children, these forensic interview settings, they're highly reliable. When a child's interviewed in a forensic interview setting, over 99% of the time they're telling the truth. You've got to understand the dynamic that children do lie, but children lie to get out of trouble. They don't lie to get into trouble. And when coming forward on a case of abuse like this, they feel like it's their fault. They feel like it's their fault, and they're going to be in trouble. And it's so important we understand that dynamic. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. And that was, I, I carried that guilt that I was somehow in trouble for this happening. You know, that I was going to be in trouble that I didn't tell the very first time this had happened. And this guilt I carried for thinking that he didn't start doing this to my sister until a year later. And it had been happening to me. And I would think back, well, if I had said something in the beginning, he would have been stopped and he never would have done anything to her. Um, but I had to realize over time that I can't beat myself up because I was being threatened and nobody was educating me that. You don't keep these secrets. You will be believed. So, Aaron, you have turned, so let's fast forward. You have turned incredible pain into incredible passion, mm -hmm. to, to incredible leadership, and to incredible impact. So let's fast forward to February of 2010. How did you get involved? How did you find your voice? How did you get involved in public speaking? How did you get involved in sharing your message? So when I was a senior in high school in 2004, I published my diary into a book called Stolen Innocence and went after a degree in social work, got my master's and began, at that time, traveling the country and putting a face and voice on this silent epidemic, appearing on many national um, media outlets, being interviewed on wanting to educate people that this is going on and if this has happened to you, you have nothing to be ashamed of, this is not your fault. I wanted to give others the ability to find their voice and break their silence instead of suffering the way I had. And during that process, that diary that I had kept locked away, in 2009 I read a passage that said, Officer Friendly comes in and teaches us, don't answer the door and my parents are gone, you know, don't go look for the lost puppy. But he, you know, we're taught nothing about people like my cousin, the people you know, that you know, I feared someone like my cousin would jump out of bushes and attack you at night. They don't educate you about your own family, that this could be somebody you know. And I remember reading that going, they don't. Every year, I remember the police officer showing us the video of the creepy stranger trying to lure you into the car. The stranger danger. The stranger danger. And the reality is, they show you this video of this guy with missing teeth that look like he hasn't showered in months, when often, it's not that person. It is 90% of the time someone a child knows that is hurting them. And so I took that diary entry and said, I need to do something. I started doing research. I found out we require in Illinois tornado drills, bus drills, fire drills, every year mandated. We teach DARE, the eight ways of saying no to drugs. But where are the eight ways on how to get away until today? We don't educate kids on it. We make it way too easy in this world to give predators the ability to silence kids. And so I said, I, I need to do something. And so I began reaching out to state legislators and telling them my story and telling them how I feel if I had been given a message and taught safe touch, unsafe touch, safe secrets, unsafe secrets, on how to speak up and tell if this is happening to you and how to identify safe adults that I could go to, then 
I believe I would have spoken up and my abuse would have stopped a lot sooner than I probably would have never even been abused by my cousin because I spoke up and told and knew what grooming is, what, you know, but I was taught none of that. And so I began reaching out to legislators and saying, we need to do something about this. And I was getting nowhere. Nobody was responding to me. My state legislator, I'll never forget what he said to me on the phone. A month before I met you, Aaron, I agree with you. We need to talk to kids about sexual abuse. But you're talking about sexual abuse. They will never teach that in school. So I'm sorry, I can't introduce this piece of legislation. And you know what I said to him? I said, well, if you won't help me, I will find somebody that will. And hung up the phone. Wow. Yep. And I met you a month later. A month later. Found that person that would help me get it done. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's just going back into that moment is, is so incredible. So I want people to think about the strength and the courage and the bravery. When I tell you that this is the bravest and most courageous person I have ever met, um, you, you can hear why. Think about how easy it is, it is to be embarrassed or to have shame or, or worried about what other people think. And she, not only was this a topic that was taboo that wasn't being talked about, she is going around and talking to, to strangers but to, to focus groups that can make a difference and impact, law enforcement, social services, elected officials, but, but to moms and dads about this danger. Yes. And Aaron said something really important. 90% of the time, the person who commits this abuse is a person of position of trust or authority. And what do we teach our kids on, on how to respect and listen to people and trust or authority? We tell them, like, this babysitter is in charge. This adult is that you're supposed to listen to what adults tell you and then put yourself in a mindset, not as a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old or a 50-year-old, but as a 6-year-old or an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old. There's no balance in, in power or structure there. No. The other thing is, is Aaron dives in here to her vision for Aaron's Law to understand. And I've worked hundreds of cases, put away hundreds of pedophiles in these are crimes mostly of manipulation. There are crimes of violence, but mostly of manipulation. Oh, yeah. And I, and I have interviewed pedophiles and, and asked, okay, Rodney was one of the guy's names. He got 160 years in prison. Wow. You interviewed or you, you abused these three family members. Why didn't you abuse these other five? And he said, I knew the others would tell which was wow. the basis. What we were working on when I met Aaron was this community education campaign because I was sick to my stomach about the ways families turned against victims, about how they rallied around and supported the perpetrator. Yeah. And so the first year of this, we spoke to over 2,000 people about child sexual abuse and awareness. Mm -hmm. And then we created this presentation empowering our children to say no. And then that is when I met Aaron and I was like, Wow. So, Aaron, why don't you talk about your vision for Aaron's Law that you shared during that conference? Yes, yeah, so my vision was that every year, K to 12th grade, kids be taught in school personal body safety, how to speak up and tell if you're being abused, identifying safe adults to go to, and empowering kids to understand that this is not your fault. You will be believed. I don't care what you've been told by your perpetrators. And by coming forward, you might be saving other kids. And if this isn't happening to you, but your best friend is saying it's happening, you have to report it. Don't keep this a secret. 
and requiring that this is something we do every school year, the same way we do the tornado, bus drills, dare, internet safety. And my vision was not just in the state of Illinois requiring this. My vision was all 50 states, but I had to start in my home state and go from there. Yeah. So I heard Erin speak and talk about this vision, and she shared these simple concepts like no-go tell. Yep. She was talking about, you know, we've got to get away from good touch, bad touch, yes. because it's very confusing to the children. The safe touch, unsafe touch, safe secret, unsafe secret. And we have to teach children to tell multiple trusted adults because we cannot count on adults to do the right Our thing, thing. Yes. when they're told. And I've, I've seen this a zillion times. A zillion times in my career. Oh, right? Yes. And so Aaron gets done speaking, and I immediately walk up to her, one, to tell her how brave and courageous she is and how blown away I am by her strength and her leadership, but then to ask her where she was at in this process. You want to take it from there? Yeah, so you approached me and I told you exactly what happened a month earlier. I was told nothing would happen, and all the other state legislators I had reached out to I had heard nothing from, and you said, I want to introduce you to our local state senator, Tim Bivens. And literally two weeks later, I'm on the phone with him. And two months after that, I'm sitting in his office with you. And he, I'll never forget him telling me, this is going to be very difficult to happen. But by you sharing your story and, and testifying to these legislators, you know, you might be able to, to make it happen and get it done. And I told him, oh, no, I won't stop fighting. I don't go away. They'll eventually get sick of me. <laughs> and so we uh, went from there in 2010. He introduced, drafted the first version of Aaron's Law, which was not a mandate requiring it. It was a task force to study it. What is going on? The statistics behind it. What could be done in these schools to teach this? You know, pulling together all the resources and alarming stats of how often this happens. You know, one in three girls and one in six boys would be sexually abused by the age of 18. That's a startling number that teachers are sitting in classrooms and these kids have been abused and they don't even know that, that this has happened to these kids. And so in uh, November of 2010, I went and testified and for the um, House Education Committee and shared my story. And I'll never forget the most powerful thing that happened out of that, the one one representative that I was told that was going to vote against this bill because she had never supported a school mandate. And she ended up breaking down and crying and said, had this law existed when she was a kid, she would have come forward and told. But like Aaron, I was told to keep it a secret, so I never told anyone. And she was crying and asked all the other legislators to say yes to this mandate. And so it was in, after this whole task force developed, 2012, we had the... Um, mandated version of Aaron's law. And once again, I'm back testifying to legislators. You and I made many trips down there. We did. We did. Aaron lives in the Chicago suburbs. And so DeKalb is kind of a meeting place between Dixon and Aaron. So we would meet mm -hmm. and then we would sure. be on our way on very short notice. The system is very, very messed up. It oh, isn't like yes. they're like, hey, next week short at 10 a.m. Yes. There's no, are you available? It's like, hey, no. we're going to call you and you got four hours to get here. Yep. Yep, definitely. I'm, I'm, I've traveled to states asking to come testify, and I'm literally given a two- or three-day notice. Can you get here in two days? Uh, and I have actually, in some states, made it happen. 
where I'm literally getting, making a booking of flight the next day and traveling because I know how crucial hearing my testimony and hearing my story is to these legislators. It could be a game changer. It's all, that one message is the difference between it passing or not passing. Oh, it's a game changer. There's there's not a room that I've ever been in where where Erin stepped up and shared her story and shared her vision and shared her passion and, and led to where it didn't move people. I don't, I don't, there was a time that we traveled and, and you had spoke multiple, multiple times and there wasn't a time, at least one person, if not multiple, didn't come up and share their story with you. Yep. People for the very first time coming up to me. And I tell legislators that every time when I go to testify, you're going to see people sitting behind us listening to my testimony that are going to come up afterwards and disclose their abuse. And not only was it, you know, random citizens sitting in there for another bill or another guy, I had reporters that had come to cover my story and disclose for the very first time. I've had people in very high positions of power who have never told a soul come up and tell me this has happened to them, saying the words, you know, me too. But there's too much shame they never told anybody. For our listeners, child sexual abuse is one of the most underreported crimes in the entire country. Like, we don't even have a fraction of the information that's actually out there. And as Aaron shared, one in three girls and one in six boys will be the victims of child sexual abuse by the time they turn 18. Here's a very disturbing thing. This is based on Dr. Anna Salter's research. Men who abuse girls have an average of 19.8 victims in their lifetime, while men who abuse boys have an average of 150.2 victims. 150.2. Boys are far less likely to tell. It's far less likely to tell the girls because in addition to the dynamics Aaron's already talked about, they're a boy and the perpetrator often is a boy. And so there's all kinds of different issues going on with inside of them. So Aaron, we go meet with Senator Bivens. The, the state task force is created. 20 people come together. 20 amazing people come together, including Billy Larkin yep. from Children's Advocacy Center of Illinois, who played a major, major role yep. in, the, in this law. We we get the committee created, we we get the task force, we present this report in what was it, two thousand and twelve? Yes. In two thousand and twelve, and now it's time now it's time to introduce Aaron's law, yeah. the mandate. Yes. Aaron's start taking us through that a little bit. Yeah, so that was quite a challenge because now this is not just studying it. This is requiring it every year making schools responsible that we have to talk about this. And the problem is, just because I go and testify in one committee, and it passes through the, and then gets to the floor in the, you know, in the Senate, and passes, you now have to start all over again in the House, and get through all these different committees. And if you don't meet this deadline, by the end of session, the bill dies, and you have to start all over again. And it's happened to me many times. So in Illinois, in Illinois, the bill passes the Senate. Yes. It goes to the House, and it gets assigned to rules. So rules Mm -hmm. is where bills go to die. Yes. And the reason they go to die there is because elected officials cannot vote against legislation that protects children. Yeah. Right? And so Speaker Madigan, who's been in power and control in Illinois for a long, 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 long time. So we're told that he is the only person. Yes. The only person who can have this released from rules and assigned to committee. And so Aaron and I go to his office. 
We go in. I'm in my full dress blues. So this is one of the times for leaders. This is one of the times it's okay to use your authority and your position. <laughs> so long as it's for the good. Because I was using the fact for sure that I'm the police chief. And they really weren't going to see us. Yeah. And we demanded. You and I both demanded to be seen. Yeah. And they said, well, it's going to be a couple hours. I remember saying, so you're telling me that the speaker doesn't meet with police chiefs? Yeah. You know, this is a, a major topic that involves protecting children. And they said, well, if you're willing to wait. So we sat there and we waited for a few hours. Yes. And then we got called back. Yep. And we didn't get the speaker, right? We got his right-hand guy. Yes. We got his right-hand guy. Talk about that. I just shared my passion once again with you know, him and said, this is what happened to me. This is the importance of it. You know, and he needs to know that. He needs to know that these kids are sitting in in homes all around the state that are waiting to have a voice, that are waiting to be told that you don't keep this secret. And by not passing this in Illinois, you're silencing children. You are letting perpetrators win. And you know what I tell them all in every state? The only person that should be voting against this bill or fighting me to not get it passed are the sexual predators. Everybody else should be in support of protecting kids. So you talk about stepping into moments. Aaron stepped into this moment with Speaker Madigan's right-hand guy, decision maker. I shared from the police side and the challenges and what we had seen. He thanked us for our time. We felt good about it. And before we got back home, the bill moved from rules and got assigned to committee. Yep. So I think I think this, this ties me into this leadership principle that when you know your why, you can endure any how. And when you put your mind to something, and you said this earlier, and there's like I'm getting out of your way if you've got your <laughs> mind put to something. If you have your mind put to something, oh, you have yes. this belief, and it is your passion, and you have vision. You have incredible, incredible vision. If you yes. know how to unite people. Yes. Which you just pull people together. It's just crazy. Huge, huge things can be accomplished. And so we had a little work left to do, right? We had to get through committee. Yes. An education committee that, that it, so we met Jerry Mitchell. Yes. You want to talk about Jerry a little bit, Representative Jerry Mitchell? He was a great guy. He was retiring that year. And he was also one of those people that weren't supportive of school mandates. But Yes, he told me, I see this is something with huge potential that needs to be done. And even agreed that there's other mandates that we could get rid of to include this one. Because this is far more important than other, other mandates in schools. And he was very passionate, um, just as much as Senator Bivens. He had never supported a mandate nope. on schools before now. Nope, never did. There was a few people that way. There were a few people that got up and spoke and said, I've never supported a school mandate until now. And, you know, he, as, as Senator um, Bivens told me, you have to get up there and testify and share your story because I can't do it with, without you. And that's why I made every trip down there, because I knew that they had, they had to hear it beyond just the legislator. They had to hear the personal experience of the effects that child sexual abuse has on someone of how I like to tell them that I want to give that seven-year-old that's being abused for the very first time the ability to know how to tell someone tomorrow. Instead of that seven-year-old being abused for the first time and being raped and molested for the next four years by her stepdad, and then being a 30-year-old heroin addict in drug rehab, finally telling a counselor why she turned to drugs. 
we don't need that. And all it could take was an hour lesson educating and how to speak up and tell to make the difference of that scenario versus the other scenario happening. So, so powerful. Another leadership lesson for our leaders, and it's, it's around emotional intelligence. So Jerry Mitchell, a very, very accomplished Republican representative, yep. knew that things are controlled by the Democrats. In Illinois, they're controlled by the Democrats. And so between him and Senator Tim Bivens, yep. who are both Republicans, which the area we're from is heavily Republican, you know, whichever side of the aisle you're on, it makes no difference to me. Um, but they connected us to Representative Linda Chapalavia, who is a very powerful leader in, in the House of Representatives. And she ran that committee. And I remember going in to meet with her in Aurora um, and, and talking with her and sharing things on this. And I believe you either had a phone conference with her. I'm trying to remember. It's been so long ago. Or you, were, you met in person. But, but at either rate, she came on board immediately. immediately. Yes. She came on board immediately. And then within a few weeks, we're back in Springfield testifying yes. in front of this House Education Committee. And Jerry Mitchell, if you remember, Jerry Mitchell, got they, the committee took their turns razzing him. Oh, about supporting a school mandate. Oh, yeah. He's been against it all these years. All these years. Yes, that's right. So, so here's the thing for, for leaders, and, and it's an important thing along this road here. It, you've got to be resourceful. You've got to understand whatever system, and you've got to create a really good strategy, and, and you've got to go out and, and start with why and share your story and inspire and empower and, and show the way why this is so important and what it will do. But, but it's important who we draw into our team and that resourcefulness and the ability to make relationships and connections and Linda Chaplavia and I remain friends today. She's an amazing woman. That's awesome. And she, from that point, kind of carried that torch to push it through. Oh, yes. And Aaron showed up and testified. No way anybody was voting against it. Next thing you know, it, it gets out of committee. It goes to the floor. It gets passed at the floor. And all we need is the governor to sign it. Talk about how special that day was. Yeah. And it was special for a lot of reasons, but talk about that day. What day was it? It was January 24th, 2013. And I had asked, I had made so many trips to Springfield. And if anyone knows anything about Illinois, it's nothing but cornfields. It's a pretty boring drive, three-hour drive. And I had asked his office, I said, is there any way he can come sign the bill at the place where I found my voice and broke my silence? I would love to see my bill signed, giving kids a voice in the place I found my voice. And he agreed to it. And I'll never forget showing up there. I did not realize how passionate this governor would be about what I did, about, about this law and the importance of it and backing it. I figured we're going to show up. He's going to sign it and go on his merry way. No, no. He stood up there and was just, which I thought was incredible. I was not expecting that at all. And it made me realize I have this other person in my corner. And he said it that day, I want to take you to D.C. to the big governor's conference they do every year. And I want to introduce you to all these other governors because your vision is all 50 states. And sure enough, just a few months later, I was in D.C. And he was taking me from one meeting to the next, talking to all these different governors on this law and the importance of it and, you know, what my goal was. So this governor followed through on his word. He didn't say something just in a meeting that made people feel good. Like he followed through on that. 
oh yes, followed through on it. And even though he eventually left office, I don't know if he was reelected or whatever, but I've heard as, as early as, um, as most recent as last year, he was doing a, a um, radio interview with some Chicago station. And someone messaged me and said, former Governor Quinn is saying the most important thing he did as a governor was sign Aaron's law. I go, that's awesome to hear. Wow. You know, to hear Impact. there's some, there's, you know, you hear a lot of shady things about people in politics, but there are some good men out there that support good things and do good things. There are. There are. And it takes true leadership from people a lot of times to bring these issues, these pressing issues. I mean, what's more important than protecting children? Yeah. Yeah. To have the courage to use their voice and use as you use your voice. Yep. So we met in February 2010, and it was 2013 when the governor signed the law. Yep. It also talks to the staying the course, yeah. never giving up, um, understanding what system that we're in, mm -hmm. and talk about staying the course. So your vision is for Aaron's Law to be in all 50 states. How many states? So I've been traveling so now for a decade. Um, and like I mentioned, I know how important getting up and testifying and sharing my personal experience is. So I don't care how many times I have to do it. It's worth it for me to know that it'll give a kid a voice and, and their horror they're experiencing. I've traveled as far away as Alaska and Hawaii state capitals to testify on this bill. And now more than half the country um, I have testified in to give kids that voice. And it's amazing the stories that are coming out of these states as a result of this now being passed in 37 states. I'm now being able 37 to... 37 states. Yes. 37 states. Aaron, people might think, and then the perception, like you have this huge team that you're working with. Like, <laughs> this is you. No, nope, just me. The, these states aren't paying for your travel, right? Like, they're not no. flying you in. And when I went after Aaron's Law in other states in Illinois... And I had paid 3000 out of my own pocket to travel because these legislators are like, we can't fly you out here, but this bill isn't going to pass unless you come and testify. I realized I need to do something. So I opened up a 501c4 and used that funding to travel to all these state capitals to testify. And what's amazing now that it has been passed in so many states is I am seeing the benefits of this law being passed with news articles around this country popping up of putting predators behind bars because kids learned this law. And and just seeing Portland cop goes and teaches kids on Aaron's law. Child discloses that another child discloses. Sent away. Man in Illinois, 42 years after nine-year-old discloses immediately to her teacher after being taught Aaron's law, saying mom's boyfriend's been raping her since she was three. No one had ever educated her. All it took was that one hour to give her a voice. And so it's, that's, that's what's amazing. So now when I contact these legislators in these remaining states haven't passed it, I include stacks of new, um, newspaper article links and saying, here's your evidence that it works. And the biggest hurdle has been told that this is an unfunded mandate. And in 2015, December 2015, President Obama signed the federal version under the Every Student Succeeds Act that federally funds Aaron's Law. So we can no longer call it that unfunded mandate wow. that has stopped me in so many states. Now there's funding there, and that is what helped push it forward in, in these remaining states. So there's 13 states remaining. Which states are, like, in your crosshairs right now? Right. I mean, all 13 are, but which yes. ones are you really Right down? now I'm working on real hard Wisconsin, Ohio, 
and North Carolina. Those are three states that I'm really focused on that have the most activity going um, with this bill. And what I've learned in some of these states, for example, in New York, it took me seven years of trying to pass this. It was one of the first states I went after after passing it in Illinois. And what I have discovered is there are some pretty powerful people, and just one person could be against a bill and stop it from going anywhere. But the thing is, is people don't stay in politics forever. That one senator that's blocking it forever is eventually going to move on, is eventually going to do something else or retire. And that's what I sit back and wait after a bill dies year after year. Okay, I just have to wait till that person's gone. Get it reintroduced, and that's what I did in New York. Took seven years, but once that woman left the education committee, the chair of it, found somebody else, and was a year ago today that my face was on the front page of the, one of the biggest New York City newspapers with Governor Cuomo. Huge, taking up the entire front page. Wow. Asking why he has not yet signed this law that I had finally gotten passed. And like I like to tell people, if you want to get something done, you go to the media. The media is a pretty powerful place, and that is where I have, have often gone and turned to when I'm hitting dead ends. I go to my resources and tell them, why are, why are we protecting predators? There it is again, resourcefulness, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Never I, giving up. Never giving up. And I tell these legislators, I'm not going away. I told them in New York, took seven years, but I tell them, I'm going to become your biggest headache until you pass this law. You can't get rid of me. I'll come back year after year. I will continue to put your state, your legislators in the spotlight for not passing this law. And it's looking, it's looking bad now to those last 13 states. And that's what I now say in my message when I write these legislators. You are one of 13 states that has not passed this law. Do you really want to go down as that last state that did not put protecting children first? And that's where I leave it with them. You know, I think one thing we'll do um, in the podcast description and, you know, we'll remark this on LinkedIn and Facebook and through your marketing of this podcast is put the states there. Yeah. Because we've got listeners now in six continents. We've got listeners all over the United States. And if you live in one of those states and you have influence, if you have yeah. a position that can open doors or even if you want to put people together who, who can, yeah, we ask you to do that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I tell people, what do you do? Write every single senator and representative in your state. Don't just start with your – anybody can introduce it. They don't have to be an education committee. They don't have to be your local senator to introduce a bill. Anybody can introduce it. And the more you can get sponsored, the better. And you know what you do when you write them? You go to Aaronslaw.org or my Aaron's Law Facebook page, and you find the articles of how this law is successful. And you send that to them, and you say, see, see what this can do? Yeah, Aaron has received so many – calls, emails, other messages about how somebody's child has found their voice. There's all these different articles. I know in our region, um, and I'm not as connected to it now as the city manager, but there were people in their 30s, 40s, like there were 50 kids that came forward in our region over a period of 10 years as a result yeah. of, of this law. This works. It works. It's incredible to see the impact and the mission you're on and to know you won't be stopped. You will get this passed in the final 13 states. So Aaron, talk about, so Aaron and her leadership, and that's what this podcast is all about, leadership excellence. She exemplifies leadership excellence. One of the toughest, most tenacious, but thoughtful and caring people that I've ever met. Uh, she was recognized with a huge honor 
Glamour's Woman of the Year. Talk about that. Talk about that experience a little bit. Some of some of the people you met, the stage that you got to share your message on. Yeah, I was contacted by editor in chief of Glamour magazine back in October of 2012, and told me I am one of ten women that are going to be recognized as Woman of the Year. And Selena Gomez was one of them. I mean, I'm in in the company of some celebrities, and I'm being told I'm going to be in New York City on Carnegie Hall being presented this award in front of nearly 3,000 people. And you're talking tons of celebrities in that audience. And once again, that's, it's not so much about, oh, you know, look at this award I'm being given. It's once again, making those resources and connecting people with powerful positions that know other people to help me get this passed. And I was asked, I could pick any celebrity, politician, who you name it, to enter, um, to Give this give this reward to me. You know, here's this award. Who do you want to present it to you? And I gave them a few names. And um, from ER, actress Juliana Margulies and The Good Wife, she ended up getting up there and presenting me the award. And she even said in her speech, you know, we teach kids all these different things, but we do nothing on this subject. She had never even talked to her own son about it. And it opened up her eyes. And she told me, Aaron, I want to help you. I want to help you get this passed in these other states. And she's been a key person in my journey to get it passed in New York. She's done tons of national interviews alongside me. Wow. Gone to New York City. We've done radio interviews, national TV interviews. She's she's called um, Mayor Bloomberg up and had a whole conversation, and he totally supports it. And this is when we couldn't get it passed in New York, and... We were trying everything, but she never gave up with her passion to help me get this done. And I've made some other great connections with Katie Couric, went on her show afterwards and talked about it. So the nice thing that came out of that whole experience was it wasn't just, oh my gosh, you're being recognized and the people you get to meet, but it's being able to sit there and reach other people in that audience, in, in the people of power that could help me get this passed in so many other states. And I'll never forget standing on this stage. And you're literally told to speak no longer than two minutes. And I remember I'm getting up there to go speak on the stage. And here I am in front of all these celebrities. And I thought to myself, and here I was told as a kid, no one will believe you to keep this a secret. There was all this shame for years of, you know, living in this dark hole and sitting on the stage with this bright light in front of me and having so much power to make such a huge difference on something that I was told to be quiet about. And now I won't shut up about. Yeah. No, that's never happening. Oh, no. Passion, purpose, impact. Wow. So, Aaron, somebody who wants to know about Aaron's Law or somebody who wants to follow the work that you continue to do, how do they do that? What's the best way to do that? So you can go to the most place I'm most active is the Aaron's Law Facebook page. You can send me messages there. You can find other things there. If you go to aaronslaw.org, you can see a whole section of resources, books, curriculum, a section on parents, which you can do, the warning signs to look for, a section for teachers, a section for students on how to, you know, find somebody to talk to, what to do if your friend discloses this. You can see if your state has been a state that passed it or not. And you can see a lot of my other interviews I've done on, on different shows. Yeah, and, and those resources for parents, you know, if you're not teaching your child yeah. on this topic yes. through casual conversation, through age appropriateness, very, very simply, yep. 
you're risking that a predator will. Yep. And and predators are, are very good. They're masters of manipulation. They're very good at this grooming process. It isn't like the first time they meet or have access to a kid. Yeah. This happens. They're checking to see which kids will tell and keep the secret yep. or which kids have been empowered and given the message and the strategies. Like we are arming yep. children by giving these messages. And that was the essence of our empowering children to say no. Yeah. Understanding and realizing that more than 90% of the time when these things happen, it's a person in a position of trust or authority. Somebody the parent trusts, which is why it's so hard to believe, but we never really know who people are. No, you don't. It is often the person you least suspect that are hurting children. And that's a message I tell so many parents. Don't think, oh, but I know that person so well. Because it's often that person that will shock you if this were to ever come up to yeah, Dr. Anna Salter, I saw her speak at a, at a conference, and we brought her to our conference, the conference that Aaron uh, and I met at in Dixon. Uh, that was a conference that was drawn in over 100, 150, 200 uh, investigative professionals a year. And she actually has videos of interviewing um, these, these pedophiles who'd agreed, you know, who'd been arrested, had been in trouble, who'd agreed to, to share for whatever reason. And it was, it was scary. Yeah. Like, it, it, it was scary. Aaron... You are such a rock star. Thank you. You are, you are one of the most courageous, the bravest people that I've ever met. And your willingness to, to share what you have, to come in, in, in 2010 and what you're doing before, to, to, to stick with this path and to be willing to sit and talk today. And for us to be able to reconnect has been yeah. amazing. And people often ask me, what, why are you so driven what keeps your drive to to accomplish this and not just give up when you you know hit so many dead ends and in, in being pushed back by certain states and not passing this and the one thing I tell people is because I know the horror of what it is like to endure something like this and you can't erase it it stays with you the rest of your life and if I could protect one kid from carrying what I went through it's well worth it and that's why I don't give up that's why there's this passion, because I know there are kids out there right now, and those remaining 13 states that are waiting for me to give them a voice, waiting for Aaron's law to teach them how to speak up and tell and know that they will be believed, instead of listening to their perpetrator to stay quiet. Wow. That, that's one powerful way to, to end our time together. <laughs> Leaders, uh, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Please give us a rating. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, leave a review, share with your network, and always be committed to excellence.